Galatians chapter 3, and we will look at verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. Galatians three twenty-three to 4, 7. This is the word of the Lord. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For of many, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Father, you have caused all of the scriptures to be written for our learning. And so we ask now that we may hear and read and pay attention to and learn and inwardly digest this passage, that by the patience and the comfort of your word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the tools of the biblical interpretation trade is to read the Bible in large segments and look for recurring themes as you do so. When you take a book of the Bible and you read it looking for the big picture and the main themes found therein, you likely will gain a better grasp of the mind of the author and therefore of the mind of God. It's important to look at the details of a text, but Far too many of us tend to get lost in the details of texts before we have seen the whole of what is being said. Chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles, they help us to find passages in the Bible, but they were very late additions to the text. They're not part of the inspired text. And in my view, they don't help us learn to see overarching themes in the Bible. And we can have a tendency, if we're not careful, to turn the Bible into a mere reference book of passages and not see themes in the whole as it was intended. We must learn to see the big picture. Grasping the larger themes of the biblical authors makes the meaning of the individual texts all the more clear. Paul has already hinted 
at the themes which emerge out of our text tonight. We saw some of this this morning in both Sunday school and in our sermon. All he's doing is putting a little different spin on those recurring themes. He's holding up the same themes like a diamond, and he's turning the diamond to show us how the light reflects differently from a different angle. Chapter 3, 1 through 14 states that we are spiritual children of Abraham by faith. Chapter 3, 15 to 22 shows how the promises to Abraham were promises to Abraham and to Christ. And our text tonight puts those two themes together. We are children of Abraham because we are united to Christ by faith. Paul connects chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 with the theme of 4, verse 4. Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The themes of redemption from the law and slavery, sonship, union with Jesus Christ, inheritors of the promises to Abraham by faith alone, these are the major themes recurring throughout Galatians and they show up again tonight. Three things I want us to see this evening out of this text. One, the law was a guardian until the coming of Christ. The law was a guardian until the coming of Christ. Second, we are children of God in Christ Jesus. We're children of God in Christ Jesus. And third, very simply, adoption. We have been adopted into God's family. So first... Verses 23 through 25, the law was a guardian until the coming of Christ. Paul says it in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And Paul's use of the term guardian here parallels what he says in verse 23. We were were imprisoned, we were held captive under the law until the coming faith was revealed. The words imprisoned, And held captive here may may be too narrow of a translation. Paul wants to instruct us that, that the law, it confined and guarded us until Christ came. Hence, verse 24, the law was our guardian. Now, if you were reared on the King James, the familiar words are the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Some other versions pick up this idea and say that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And I I want us to think of how these two different translations, guardian and tutor, they actually complement each other because they're they're both trying to speak of the same idea. They go together. Do you remember from your Alabama history the nature of the relationship between Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan? Ann Sullivan was brought into Keller's home when Keller was young to serve as her teacher. But Ann Sullivan was more than just a teacher. She lived with Keller. She was something of a governess. She was a close companion and friend to Keller in her life. That, that's, that's getting close to the idea of a guardian who is also a teacher. That's Where Paul seems to take us with our relationship to the law before Christ came, the the law confines, it, it guards, and it teaches us until the coming faith is revealed. But verse 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Let me reemphasize here, 
that Paul does not mean to suggest that justification by faith alone did not exist prior to the coming of Christ. Remember, the Jews were not justified before God by their performance of the law until Christ came, and then it all changed and they were justified by faith. No, the the law, remember, we talked this morning, the law is like training wheels on a bicycle. The, The law is also like a spare tire on your car. You have, a, you have a blowout on the highway. There's not a tire dealer immediately available to put on a new tire on the side of the road. What, what must you do? You must put on the spare tire for a temporary purpose to lead you to the repair center so that a new tire can be put on your car. You, you can't drive your car without four tires, but sometimes you must have a temporary fix to a broken tire to get you to a fully restored four tires that are permanent. And what sense does it make once you've reached it to the tire dealer to buy a tire and put it in the back of your car and just keep going on the spare? That's what going back to the law is like. It's not a perfect analogy, but hopefully you see the point. It is always by faith alone that men and women are justified. You must always have four tires to drive your car, but the law was something of a temporary fix, a guardian, a teacher, to bring us to the fullness of faith as it's been revealed in Christ. These are recurring themes. One use of the law was to lead Israel as a church under age to Jesus Christ. But now, in Christ, those ceremonial types and shadows have been abrogated. So there's no need, Galatians, to circumcise in accordance with the law of Moses. That is to go backwards in salvation history and to render Christ pointless. He's already come. Why go backwards? Now, I want to go ahead tonight, and I'm going to jump into point two. We are children of God in Christ Jesus because... In this passage, we have to talk both about baptism and about women's roles. There's a lot to cover in just point two. As we delve in these topics, please don't miss the overall theme of verses 26 through 29. We are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ and not otherwise. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And verse 29 picks up some of the same connections we saw this morning. The promises to Abraham were to Abraham and to his one offspring, Christ. Christ is the inheritor of the promises to Abraham. If you belong to Christ, if you're united to Christ, you share in the inheritance with Christ, and thus you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to baptism. So what does Paul mean here in verse 27? How does verse 27 and the mention of baptism fit into what Paul is saying? Remember the Galatian problem. False teaching had come in telling the Galatians that they could not be saved. They could not be saved unless they underwent the Jewish rite of circumcision. In other words, you can't be saved unless you undergo this particular Jewish rite. And Paul says in verse 26, no, you are all children of God through faith. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. You're children of God by faith, not circumcision. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In the Galatian context, Paul is teaching that the initiatory rite into Judaism, circumcision, it no longer has any effect because a new initiatory rite exists, baptism. 
circumcised Jews do not have the sole right to the covenant. Everybody in the church, whether Jew or Greek, male or female, everybody put on Jesus Christ in baptism. Jesus Christ gave a new initiatory right into God's covenant, baptism. Now, many well-meaning Protestants read verse 27 and try to make it say something other than what it actually says. It says that we have been baptized into Jesus Christ. Baptism is not merely a symbol. The New Testament does not teach that baptism is only a sign and nothing more. Baptism is not less than a symbol. Baptism clearly has a symbolic function, but it is much more than a mere symbol. Paul says baptism into Christ is clothing yourself with Christ. Baptism, to use the language of our confession, is a means of God's grace. Baptism is an instrument through which grace God's grace comes to men and women. Now, many Protestants don't really know what to do with passages that connect God's grace and forgiveness with baptism. What do we do with Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Romans 6, we were buried with Christ in baptism. Colossians 2, we were buried with him in baptism. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism saves you. What? And many Protestants, good Bible-believing Protestants, read all that and say, well, those passages can't really mean all that because that sounds very Catholic. After all, we're saved by faith alone, not water baptism. So these passages must just mean that baptism is a symbol and nothing more. You even get that in the Nicene Creed. We did the Apostles' Creed tonight, but if you turn the page and look over at the Nicene Creed, it says, I believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. What's going on here? First, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting in the slightest that the mere application of water saves anybody. But the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit communicates Jesus Christ in baptism. The confession of our church mediates between the mere symbol idea and the mere application of water idea by saying there is in every sacrament, in every sacrament, a spiritual relation or a sacramental union between the, thought, the, between the sign and the thing signified. Again, it says, The grace exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, but by the work of the Spirit and the word of institution. What is that saying? That's saying that water baptism in the power of the Holy Spirit and not because of the water itself The water baptism is communicating Jesus Christ and all that he is. It is a means of grace. Baptism is something that is done to us, not something that we do. The larger catechism, if you read the larger catechism, it will even say that baptism is an effectual means of salvation. Ephesians 5.26, Jesus Christ sanctifies the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word. The, The water in baptism does not save. Baptism is not a mere symbol. Baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And when the Holy Spirit works in baptism, baptism becomes a means of God's grace. 
I think one helpful way to understand baptism is to parallel it with how the Holy Spirit works in the preaching of the word. After all, baptism is a visible word. Is there anything inherently spiritual about the physics of a voice declaring God's word? A a voice is something of an instrument of God's word, but it's not the, the physics of the preacher's voice that communicates the saving benefit. Rather, the Holy Spirit takes the word spoken and works with it spiritually in the hearts of men and women. And if, if, if an unbeliever hears the word preached and, and refused to assent by faith alone, the preached word in that moment does them no good. So, so it is with baptism. For a person who undergoes baptism but never comes to faith in Christ, that baptism does nothing for them. But just as the preached word does great good in the power of the Holy Spirit, and just as it becomes a means of God's grace when people respond in faith, so too baptism does great good in the power of the Holy Spirit and becomes a means of God's grace when responded to in faith. If a person responds to the preaching of the word in faith, wouldn't it be perfectly valid to say that that person had been preached into Jesus Christ? A person who has saving faith and undergoes water baptism is baptized into Christ. We are saved by faith alone, and faith alone is what makes salvific blessing in preaching and baptism effective for us. Because there is a spiritual connection between the sign and the thing signified, it is perfectly biblical, rightly understood, to say baptism saves. We are, when understood correctly, baptized into Jesus Christ. Let's move on. So, verse 28. Some folks have used verse 28 to support the view that in the church that a, a, uh, a woman can have any role that a man takes in the church, right? There is no male or female in Christ. Therefore, any role that a man performs in the church, a woman can perform and vice versa. And I, all I want to say is don't lose sight of the recurring themes in the overall context. Circumcision was limited to males who were entering the Jewish faith. In Christ, however, all people go through the initiatory sign and seal of the covenant, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. It doesn't matter. We're all children of God in Christ Jesus. Just because Paul will say in other places that men perform certain roles in the church and women perform certain roles, that does not mean that a male or a female has more worth in the eyes of Christ. Far from it. We are all made in the image of God, and in that sense, there is no male or female. The Jew is not better than the Greek. The free man is not better than the slave. The male is not better than the female, nor the female better than the male. Let's hasten. Third point, adoption. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul uses an analogy here to illustrate the purpose of the law. The same diamond, but the light striking it differently. In the United States of America, you cannot inherit from a dead parent unless you are 18 years old. There is a sense in which uh, you own whatever a dead parent has left, left you, but you cannot take full possession of it until you are 18. A trustee, if you're underage when your parents die, a trustee cares for your property until you reach the required age. So you own it, but you have not yet acquired full possession of it. In the Roman world, until you reached 
the age of inheritance. Though you had a kind of title to the inheritance, you were no different than a slave. In the same way, verse 3, before the coming of Christ, we were enslaved to what? The elementary principles of the world. Even though the law guarded us until the coming of Christ, the world still ruled us. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The law did not translate us into Jesus Christ. It was a guardian until the fullness of time. But when the fullness of time came, verse 4, Jesus came and redeemed us from the curse of the law that we might, verse 5, receive adoption as sons. God, in Jesus Christ, adopts us into his family. Let this sink in. In Christ, you and I share in Christ's sonship. He is our elder brother. He is pleased to be the firstborn among many brothers, is the way the New Testament puts it. When Jesus prays in the garden before his crucifixion, he calls God Abba, Father, Abba, an intimate term for a father. That was blasphemous to the Jews. They, they sought to kill him in John chapter 5 because he was even calling God his own father. It is a huge deal to call the God of the universe your father. And yet because we have been adopted in Jesus Christ, verse 6, the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts crying out enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. We, we get to say that too. We are no longer slaves guarded by the law. We are adopted sons and daughters in Christ Jesus who are entitled to the inheritance promised to Abraham. I think it's tempting for our status as children of God to be too familiar to us. We're so used to reading biblical language concerning sonship that we, we don't view sonship for the radical idea that it really is. When we think of earthly fathers, we understand that whether a father is good or bad or, or non-existent, we, we still have some sort of a fundamental connection with our father just because we, we carry his DNA. His imprint is on us whether we like it or not. But, but here's... Here's the wild thing about adoption by God. Adoption by God is not merely a change in legal relationship and emotional support like it is in our world. Adoption by God actually goes beyond that and creates an imprint of God upon us that transcends anything that our earthly fathers, anything our earthly parents imprint upon us. Why is that? Verse 6, the Holy Spirit has been sent into our hearts. God himself is within us. And even though we are adopted, God is more fundamentally our father than any earthly father could ever be. If you've been adopted as his son or daughter, will, will not God also freely give you all things to go back to justifying yourself is to reject your adoption. You, you and I are heirs of the world with Christ. You, you will inherit a throne and a kingdom in the new creation because you're a child of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to let us know the great truth that we have been adopted as your children. Father, we confess we don't often live in the, in the sure knowledge that because you have made us children, giving up your own son for us, that you will also freely give us all things. Lord, keep us from running back into trying to justify ourselves and enable us to walk in the freedom and the reality that you have made us your children and that we are free to glorify you because you have enabled us to cry out, Abba, Father, by the Holy Spirit whom you have put in us. We pray that these truths would ring in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.